reading today is Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, the greatest commandment. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that Lord our God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, had promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk to, talk to them when you sit uh, in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. I have been sick this week. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Um, I, I, I said this last service, but I wasn't successful. I, I, um, I said that since I'm sick I, and I need to conserve my voice, and I need to make it not only through this service, but also uh, do some presentation in, the con- um, in our congregational meeting that I, you might actually get a shorter sermon. Um, but that's, that's not, I can't promise that. I, I didn't succeed in getting shorter in the first service, just letting you know, okay? But I'm going to actually try this time. <clears throat> if, you have, if you're new to our church, um, this is a part four of a series I'm beginning, at the beginning of the year. And this is actually the conclusion of this series. Um, at the beginning of the year, I like to teach on what is most important in our church, and um, I call it Niho Vision. And um, if you would look at your bulletin, we have a, a, a little tagline there that says that we're the Jesus-centered family crossing um, generations and cultures. And in part one of my message, I talked about what it means that we are Jesus-centered, which means we are built on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus, which we could not do for ourselves. In part two, I talked about what it means that we are a family that we are a community, that all those who are saved are saved into a community of God's people is God's family called the church that will be forever and forever. Last week, I talked out about how the gospel must cross into cultures, and I preached from Romans chapter 1, verses, um, one, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where it says that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greeks. There's a movement from culture to culture. Um, as the gospel goes out to redeem all these different nations and cultures, and how we in our church have a conviction that we absolutely must cross cultures with the gospel. And today I want to talk about what it means that we cross generations. That's what it means, that we are a church that crosses generations. And we call this, um, in this church we call this mission to the next generation. These last three weeks I've been preaching out of Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
it, for in it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. <laughs> salvation comes to people not through religion, not through a series of rituals that we call some kind of a religion, or even through all the do's and don'ts through the laws, but salvation comes through faith. It comes through what we believe. And what that means then is at any given point, at any given point, the, the church, the church, if it fails to pass on, if it fails to pass on the gospel well to the next generation, do you know that a given church could die out? Now, Jesus has promised that the church, the church with a capital C, that is the whole church throughout the world, will never die out. In fact, he says that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church until he returns. But, nonetheless, on any one given local church like ours, if we don't take seriously, because what we do here is religion, the way I tend to think about this is... Um, there's a contrast between what I think is truly salvation by faith through grace and the gospel versus religion. Most people tend to think that goes, here they have a building and there's a steeple and they talk about God and they have certain rituals, don't they? But most people tend to think that religion is a series of rituals. You go to a certain temple on certain holidays and so forth and then as long as you do those rituals and then you get your kids to do those rituals, then the religion goes forward, doesn't it? But that isn't the way Christianity works at all. Christianity is not fundamentally a series of rituals, and it's not even primarily a religion. It is most deeply, a deeply an entrance into and having a deep relationship with God by being a part of his family, being adopted into his family, and having your sins forgiven by the blood of, his, of the Son of God and having God as your Father. And this isn't just a series of rituals. And so on any given point, there's lots of people, unfortunately, there are many Christians who sometimes think that if I just go to church and then just get my kids to go to church, then Christianity goes forward and then I guess I get, I get my kids got to become Christians. But just because a person goes to church doesn't mean they're a Christian. How do they become, how do you truly get salvation? It is by what you believe. It is by faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ as, as our redemption, as our Savior, as the one who has died in our place through the cross. And then we get his life. Then we get his spirit. Then we get a whole new identity and a whole new family. This is how salvation, but it happens fundamentally through faith. And if we don't, if that faith isn't actually passed down, if the children, if the next generation goes, you know what, I want to believe in this, then the church could actually die out. In every given generation, a, a, a given local church is actually one generation away from possibly dying out. And you know what? It happens. Churches close up shop. And in this church, one of the, our key distinctives is we absolutely are committed to saying that the gospel is not, is not a religion. It is something that's passed down. And it is a mission. So our next generation is actually our mission field. I know it's very... It's a strange way of putting it. Some people think, isn't a mission field out there, over there, you know, some faraway place where they don't, they've, they've never heard of Jesus? Or maybe some of the people in our city who don't know of the Lord Jesus. But actually, the mission field isn't only over there or even in our city, but it's right here in our own church. Right, right here in our own church. 
to the next generation. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, I could have preached out of Romans chapter 1, but I decided to take you to this tremendously important passage in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a very important passage in the scriptures. And I think this, this passage encapsulates what's, what the mission to the next generation should look like. What does it look like? What if we engage it? So I'm going to do this in three parts as I usually do. Part one, modeling faith to reach our, to reach our grandchildren. That's what I'm going to put it. Modeling faith to reach grandchildren. That's part one. Part two, immigrant brokenness. Every generation has difficulty passing on their values to the next generation, but it's especially uh, it's, it's it's especially hard challenge in immigrant circles. And I want to talk a little bit about immigrant brokenness. And then in part three, I'm going to talk about shalom through the gospel. If you don't know what the word shalom means, just hold on. <laughs> I, will, I will I'll tell you when I get there. Right. So let's part one: um, modeling faith to reach grandchildren. This is, a, this is the book of Deuteronomy. Um, for those of you who may not know, the book in the Old Testament that Jesus quotes more than any other is Deuteronomy. And what is it about Deuteronomy? Why is it so especially important? Let me just try to, um, try to give you a, a sense of this. Deuteronomy literally in the Greek means deutero second nomos law. It means the second giving of the law. It's the second giving of the meaning of God's people. So what God did was there were Abraham's descendants and they were in Egypt and they became enslaved by an oppressive ruler named Pharaoh. And they began to call out to God and ask God to remember his promises to Abraham. And then God sent them someone to, and it doesn't exactly use this word, but to redeem them out of their enslavement, out of their oppression. And you all know who that person is, and that was Moses. And so before they were a slave people scattered about, crushed and dying, without an identity and lost, and then God did this miraculous thing, sending all the, many of you know the story. I mean, it's such an incredible story that uh, every generation we have to make a movie about this. And then God redeemed the people out of an enslaved nation, out of their enslavement, out of the superpower nation of the world at the time, out of Egypt. And then he took them to a promised land, and then he gave them a whole new set of laws, a whole new way of life, a whole new identity, which was based upon, not based upon merely the rules and the rituals, it was based upon how he shaped them and what he did for them. So all throughout the Old Testament, you know, the, some people tend to think that the New Testament is based upon grace, and the Old Testament is based upon law. That is not true. <laughs> it is not true. The Old Testament is also based upon grace because do you think these Israelites deserved, <laughs> deserved what God gave them? Absolutely not. The reason he gave them a whole new set of laws and a whole new way to live was as a response, as a gift, that they would live this out as a response of what God has already done for them. And so all throughout... The first five books of the Bible, which we call the Torah, or you know, broadly speaking, the law, is always this remember who God is and what he has done for you. There's a call back to a response to remembering your identity of what God has done for you. And this is so deep that this, is, this goes all throughout the scriptures. 
And so even as Christians today, it isn't that first being a Christian is doing a set of things and rules and having all this knowledge and then doing a, series of, doing a series of rituals and rules. That isn't what makes you a Christian. It is first and fundamentally to know that God has done something for you and shaped you and called you toward himself. And then out of this, we live for him a whole new different kind of life. Now, um, it is before they went into the promised land that Moses gave the second giving of the law. So he gave Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers early on and it has all these different things, do this and don't do this and so forth. And this is, uh, this is, this is your identity of the way God made you and there's, a lot of, and there's some history there. But then this book, the second giving of the law, which Jesus likes to quote from, was essentially a long sermon that Moses gave before the people crossed into um, the promised land. And it was, it, there's wisdom here. <laughs> it was a urging, but mostly it was to say to come back to your heart. That God, who are you from the heart? Not just a series of rule keepers, but who are we? And this passage especially, Deuteronomy 6, I think this this is, encapsulates, I think, a picture of like how pretty much all believers, all of the people have got until Jesus returns anyway, how we will practice passing on the faith to the next generation. So let's get into this passage. Um, I think there's certain key wisdom points that I want, to, um, that I want us to, uh, to pick up here. And let's go through this. Um, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God, that Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and commands which I command you all the days of your life. That's the first wisdom point I want you to see. Who is the target audience for the mission to the next generation? Many people think, well, isn't it just our kids? Um, actually, it's not. <laughs> According to the scriptures, it's your son and your son's son. The target audience for us to reach when we're seeking to reach the next generation is actually two generations out. It's our grandchildren. And let me put this in a, in a, in a slightly different way. In one sense, of course, I hope that those of you who are parents... Of course, I, I absolutely, if you believe in Jesus, I, I certainly would hope that you care that your children believe in Jesus. But it isn't just the, the Bible's intent. This, there's such wisdom here. The Bible's intent is not only would we live out our faith in such a way that our children would say, Hey, Dad, hey, Mom, what you do, what you believe, how you understand God is so compelling. I want to believe that too. But they would have seen how we do it. <laughs> They will see what it takes to live that out. And they would say, so that then they've experienced it. They've seen the model of it. So much of the way Bi the, the Bible teach, uh, teaches discipleship is simply see it, follow it. <laughs> so much of the way the disciples learned it was simply see it, do what Jesus does, follow it. And here it is too. It's such that, if, that, that they can follow how we follow, <laughs> that they can give this on to their children too. <laughs> and so... Um, I want to say a couple things here. Number one, first to parents. Um, um, if you're a mom and dad and you think, if I just get my kids into church, then you know, I've kind of done my job. Uh, let me tell you something. No way. <laughs> uh, just because 
I, I, what's, there, there's a phrase, um, there's a clever phrase that I, I once heard. Um, just because someone goes to church doesn't make them a Christian. Just like you, by walking into a garage, don't become a car, right? Um, or some, something like that, right? And really what it is, people become, really become part of the family of God by faith. And faith is just, it's not just an idea that just goes into our mind or a feeling that goes into our heart. It's something that we believe so much that it's played out and lived out in our life. That's one thing. So, you know, kids are always watching their parents. You know that? <laughs> They're always watching. And they will hear certain things about who Jesus is when they go to church. But let me tell you something. Video is far more powerful <laughs> than audio. They're watching us. They're watching you really believe this? Does it make a difference in your life? How does it shape your heart, your values, what you sacrifice for, what you're willing to die for? Are you willing to obey this God that you say is so important? Do you truly have fear and awe and love of this God? Just as, well, that's what they said in the Bible. That's what it says. Let me say a second point. Um, since faith is by is since, since salvation comes by faith, it isn't fundamentally even just biological that we're talking about here. You know, you don't have to be a parent to, um, to engage in the mission to the next generation because in one sense, we are all here to be, this, I know this may sound a little strange, to be spiritual grandchildren. I mean, to have spiritual grandchildren. Um, all people who follow the Lord you, you, we all should endeavor to want to be spiritual fathers and mothers and actually become spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers in what we, so that we live out our faith in such a way that when we exalt Christ, people will look at that. There will be people who will say, you know what, the way you follow the Lord, I want to learn about that. And maybe they won't actually say that to you. Then you maybe they'll be in your, in your small group. In our, in our church, we call them Gospel Life Families, GLF. And there'll be somebody in the GLF. They're, they're, a, they're, a, they're a young Christian or they're a new Christian. And I hope we have that. We have people who are brand new Christians. And they're going to look at you. And this, this is odd. <laughs> this is odd. Let's say you're 35 and this person is brand new Christian in the church. is 45. And that person starts to find your faith compelling do you realize you could be a spiritual father or a mother to somebody who's actually older than you? Isn't that strange? <laughs> it's actually strange. And then if that person then goes and shares the gospel with somebody else and begins to influence that person, then that person and next, the way they, this person has learned how to follow the Lord from you, then, then they pass it on to somebody else. Here you go. Now you're a spiritual grandfather <laughs> or a spiritual grandmother. And this is a movement that's going on. So this isn't just for folks who are um, 35 years old and you have a child, or you're 45 years old and you have children, or that you could be 60 years old and we should care about those who are 40 years old, or even older than us, but they don't know the Lord. Or if you're 40 years old, you care that you don't just come to church saying, hey, you know what, I'm just going to come to church and I like what, I, you know, I'm just going to go over here because all my peers are over here. Or, I like this service because this is where all, you know, the folks of my generation go to this service. No. That in this whole church, that everybody has a mission that if you're 40, you should care about those who are in the 20s. Heck, even if you're in the 20s, you should care about those who are 10. And I would even venture to say that those who are 10-year-olds can be spiritual fathers and mothers to those who are 3- and 4-year-olds. 
And if everybody believes in this mission, do you think well, it will be a lot more powerful and a lot more effective if we all do this together in this way? It's one piece of, um, of wisdom. Um, let's continue. All right. um, I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. And by the way, I, I don't see multiplying greatly as only having just more and more biological children, but having more children of faith. <laughs> as the Lord, the God, as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the next portion. Here's the next piece of wisdom. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the first great commandment. Some people say that, um, that well, no, not some people. <clears throat> what is the passage that, when, you, when I think of the Old Testament, what is the passage which encapsulates how what God is seeking? It's right here. Is that there is one God that is one treasure, one hope, one full riches of all our life. And all around the world, everybody worships. You know that? It doesn't matter. There's always some, there's in the name of God. And there's, in our society, lots of people may be secular and saying, well, I don't worship any God. But they do. If, if money or health or, or status or success or financial security is to think that this is the thing that's going to just set my life and which is most valuable in my life, then that's your God. But according to the scripture, there's only one. There's one Lord, and that's Him. And it's to Him that we should give our deepest devotion, that we should love Him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. And then, indeed, Jesus says, this is the greatest command, that if you ask, what is the one thing in your life the one thing in your life that is absolutely of most importance is to know who is God. And by God, I'm not just talking about just some theoretical person up in the sky by and by, but who is absolutely the deepest ground, the most, your deepest treasure, apart from whom there is death. And that is the, there is one, and you will devote your heart to him. So at the heart of Passing on, passing on the, our faith to another generation and then even to the generation after that is, is to know his God and worship him. For to love the Lord your God with all our heart and mind and might, this is worship. A lot of people think that worship is a, is a series of rituals that you do in a strange building on certain kinds of days. But actually, at scripture, in the scripture, the deepest part of worship is that your heart would love and cling to the one that gives you life. That's the second piece of, uh, of wisdom. So, if, if, uh, so just to speak a little bit to parents here, um, you know, kids are always watching us. Do we deeply worship? And I'm not just talking about something to do on, one, on, on, on Sunday. When they see us, do they see that, our, that we do truly, deeply love God as our life itself? Um, one more piece of wisdom. Uh, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So when, when are we supposed to do it? <laughs> According to the, the scriptures? All the time. That seems pretty comprehensive, isn't it? When you, talk, when you shall talk, when you sit in your house and when you're taking a walk and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, let the gospel, let the words of God, let the gospel permeate the entirety of your life when you go forward. And this should be just a normal kind of thing that when we talk, that these, we talk of the things of the Lord. We don't just talk about how did things go in your school or when we talk to each other, we talk about uh, last week's football game or the weather or the news or the politics. Not that these things are bad, but the deepest things. How will our, our, our next generation really see this is that it's such a rich part of our life. This is what we do. We share them with each other. Um, let me... Uh, that's part one, modeling faith. Let me go to part two, um, immigrant brokenness. You know, every generation um, has a challenge. If a people are going to be a strong people, we have this thing called culture. But I don't know if you realize this, but you know what's at the center of every culture? It's what we most deeply value and worship. That's why a society, every culture has to worship. Every culture must pass down its worship because that's the thing that we say we, this is what we value. And if we value this the most, then we do this again and again. We talk of these things and then we're willing to sacrifice for them. We're willing to fight for them. We're even willing to die for them. And um, I'm not even just talking about faith. I'm not even talking about um, a particular religion. I'm just talking about culture. One of the reasons why um, I can see, like, you know that um, right now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but America, we are in a war. There are people who very seriously hate us, and increasingly there are people who want to come into our country and are willing to kill us. We're in a war. Are there people in our society that are willing to stand up and say, I'm willing to live for this. In fact, I'm willing to fight for this. I'm willing to even sacrifice and die for this. If we can't get our next generation to believe in that, guess what? Our culture will die. That's what happens. <laughs> um, we tend to think that in, in America, like, as long as I get to be prosperous and I can have money and I get to live the life, I want to, this is what makes our country great. It can never make our country great. <laughs> If this is all we stand for, then all it's going to take is a series of recessions, a series of recessions, and then when there's a set of people who are stronger, tougher, and by stronger and tougher, I'm not even talking about their military might. It's they're willing to die. They're willing to sacrifice, and they're willing to pass on what they believe to their children to die and sacrifice. Then we're going to be pushed over, and that's what's going to happen. Every generation has this challenge. But what we, at, what we in America, as more and more as, we, or, or as we've walked away from God, I think it isn't just that as we've walked away from God, we're just losing, um, that there's lots of people who are losing salvation. It's that we're actually just losing our culture and our peoplehood, even our nation itself. And I'm not trying to make some kind of a political point or anything like this. This is just, just a bare fact of life. <laughs> 
This is how it is. Now, let me say a little something just about just the challenge of passing on our deepest worship and our deepest values to our next generation. Just that alone is challenging for every generation. But I want to just point out, in, in our country, there are certain factors which makes it even more difficult. Um, number one, we're a highly mobile society. <laughs> um, it's hard to receive what our most deepest values are because what we, you know how we receive them? You see somebody who believes in something, they practice the, all the values, and you see those values, you can see them in action, you can see what makes them beautiful and compelling and worthy of our life. And those people are really important to us. But if we start moving away from all these other friends, you know what starts to happen? The ties that hold us together, the things that make us strong from one generation to the next start getting weakened. And that's one of the issues that's happening in our society. Just because we're a mobile society where the ties between generations are loosening up. But let me give you a second reason why it's, it's getting hard just to, to do this mission to the next generation. And that's because we're very much a society built upon capitalism and money. You don't believe me? Why, why, why would that make it hard? Because if we're built, built upon capitalism, there's a temptation in a capitalistic society to think as long as we have the money and we're prosperous, then I get to live the life I want to live. Because money means choice. Money means gets the, the life that I get to decide upon. But you know what also capitalism tends to do? Um, do you know who tends to spend more money? Younger people tend to be more captured by things. And so ca capitalism invented this thing. I, I don't think I've ever heard, I, I don't know if there was such a word in certain traditional cultures from like 100 years ago or, or another. If you go to very traditional cultures, they don't have this word. We call it cool. <laughs> You know, that capitalism invented something called cool because it's a lot easier to get the next generation to buy a lot of stuff. <laughs> if something called cool, this is really cool, and your daddy doesn't know about it. <laughs> your daddy doesn't get it. And next thing you know, the whole next generation starts, they, they want to imbibe these things, and it drives the economy forward. That's what it does. And then this kind of habit, because there's all these great, tremendous incentive to get the next generation to buy new things and get into new things, whether it's a new set of clothes or the latest kind of music or the newest kinds of uh, TV shows that we all imbibe into, this starts to fray between the, the next generations. We start looking at the, our older, Dad, you're not cool. The things that you like, the clothes you like, the music you listen to, the, the stories you like, the shows you're interested in, um, it's not my thing. And there we go. The generations start to fray apart on relatively shallow matters. And that's just in general. But now let me get to um, this issue of immigrants. Um, many of you who are sitting here in this room, um, you're, you're, you're in one way or another, uh, you're, you're, you have an immigrant type of background, maybe first generation, or maybe second generation, or maybe even third generation. Um, but you start getting into an immigrant community, it starts even getting the, the brokenness gets even more dis because you have, you have not only just the, the language gap, but you have a whole series of things like, well, my dad liked to do it this way, and I don't really know why we had these customs or these things, but he did this, and I... But since 
we feel like there's some importance to them, but they start to become increasingly alien to us. And, um, and then it starts, to, it starts to divide and peg in the church as well. Right? This congregation was started specifically with this idea of reaching the next generation. They start to realize that if the gospel is proclaimed in Korean, it isn't going to work. I mean, it isn't going to work. How will they get faith if they can't even understand the things of God? But all around the country, and I'm not even just talking Korean American. Our church was started Korean American. This isn't necessarily a Korean American congregation. Um, but all around the country, whether it's, it's a, I have a, I have a pastor friend. He's Caucasian, but he speaks fluent Spanish. And he's actually the lead pastor in a Mexican-American immigrant church. And I have friends in this city who, are, who have the kind of job that, that you would call me. I'm an English-speaking, English ministry pastor, and they're English ministry pastors in a Chinese immigrant church. And um, all around the country can see that this is a difficult thing, that just having this, the, these two generations, because not only does there a language gap and, and the generational gap, but there's also a big cultural chasm too. This hasn't... All around the country, this generation, this immigrant thing is making this passing on of the gospel even more difficult. And I have all these colleagues um, that they, they tell stories, and what tends to happen is this. The first generation, they tended to have, they built the church. They tended to have more people, and they tended to have more money. So, and then the history, and they were there first, and history matters who was there first. The habits of the church tended to have been shaped by them. And then, but then another generation comes, and then they have this whole challenge of like, we can't quite do it the way they did it, and we have to try to piece together something too. And then as they're walking together, they bump into each other, and the habits of their culture start to step on each other, and we get into fights. And time and time and time again, I've heard this. I've heard the second generation yell, oh, you just don't understand us. And, and we feel alienated. <laughs> or there have been churches that have succeeded in passing on the gospel, but then as they do this, they change the worship style or they change different things, and then the older generation starts to feel, oh, you don't care about us. <laughs> you don't care about us. You don't respect our ways, and you think we're just old and we're irrelevant. And this starts to happen in the church. And, and it's even more pronounced when it's an immigrant community. Um, I, I, I mentioned recently a conversation I had with a young man um, in, in our church who doesn't believe in the Lord. He grew up in this church. I mean, he grew up in this church since he was born. And his parents deeply love the Lord. Um, he's, and yet, I think when I, when I talk to him, he, it's really strange he seems to think that Jesus, believing in Jesus and the gospel, is some kind of a strange Korean thing. <laughs> and it's weird that he thinks that because he himself is Korean-American. But because when he goes out into the world and it's this American culture and it's his generation and his sets of cool, and then he sees all the things that his dad does, he, he sees this big disconnect. And he thinks it's just based on culture. And... Um, these kinds of things, I've seen this happen again and again, where the generations fight and they split apart. 
or one generation just, just doesn't get it. But we in our church, absolutely there is a pathway to wholeness. We absolutely believe there is a way to take this thing that's broken across generations and make it whole again. And let me take this, um, take you to the, my um, final portion of my message. Um, the Bible is a word. That word, it's a very, very beautiful word. And if you've been in this church, maybe you already know what I'm about to teach you. This word is called shalom. And um, you might hear it. I like to give this benediction um, at the end of many services where I like to pronounce that God will give us shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word and is typically translated as peace. That's what shalom typically think, people think it means. But it means, but when we think about peace, we just think it just means people don't fight. And that's good. But that's not all that shalom means. Shalom means that which is lacking has been made full. That which is not finished has become complete. That which is weak will become flourishing. Shalom means peace and completion and flourishing. It means, it means that which is in part will become whole. And across, as I look around um, America, and especially in our city, our city is so full of immigrants, um, I see this. Um, I sometimes go to restaurants and I can see I can see this kind of disconnect. Go to like a Vietnamese restaurant and sometimes I can see this disconnect between first generation Vietnamese immigrants and then those. You can see sometimes like the younger Vietnamese gal who and her, and her boyfriend, you can tell, he's, you can tell he, he looks more uncomfortable. He's not Vietnamese. And then there's this disconnect across generation. This is our city. How can there be a wholeness come into this, this brokenness across generations? Um, if you may, some of you may have heard me tell this before, but I think it's such a, a telling and important. And it, it's really, it's, a, it's something that the Lord taught me, and it's really stayed with me so long that I want to share with you. Um, when, I, when I first came into this church, um, when I first came to church to be the English-speaking pastor, um, my counterpart, the lead pastor on the Korean ministry side, his name was, his name was Kyung Lee, Pastor Kyung Lee. And Kyung Lee, he understood this generational gap and this, this brokenness among immigrants. And one morning when the pastoral staff had gathered together for our usual prayer time, he told us a, a very interesting story. He said that one time he went to this ministry, and it was a ministry for battered women. <laughs> women who are being physically abused by their husbands. And he, you know, he was there, he was visiting to see how the ministry was working. And as he was observing this, he saw these two women. One of them was rich. You could tell by the way she was dressed. And she was well-educated and she had this um, more sophisticated vocabulary. And then there was this other woman and she was poor. And she wasn't so well-educated. And um, they were there together, and they were sitting there. And after the whole session was over, these two women, you know, they had shared what they, were, what they were going through. These two women stood up, and they embraced each other. And he said, and he looked to the rest of us, other pastors, he said, how is it that these two women can embrace each other? 
In the world, they should have nothing really in common. I mean, they don't shop at the same place. They probably don't look at the same things. They don't read the same books. I mean, almost, they have very, almost nothing in common. And he said, because they met in their brokenness, that's how come they can embrace. And then all of a sudden, he shifted the topic and he said, how is it that the first generation can actually embrace the second generation and vice versa. How can we actually embrace? He says, only if we meet together in our brokenness at the foot of the cross, there we can embrace. And ever since then, um, all the pastors, all, of, all those who have been pastors in their church, we have absolutely believed that it is God's call this church would learn how to have shalom. That we wouldn't be a church like so many churches function. I mean, do you know that there are churches, I'm not even talking about immigrant churches, there are churches that have fought over generations. I mean, they're like primarily, it's mostly Caucasians, people who go to the church, but there's like, all the people who like contemporary style worship go over there, and all the people who like traditional style worship go over here. And then the church sometimes splits and fights just over worship style over generations. But in our church, we thought this thing that sometimes in the immigrant community felt so impossible. How do you bridge this gap between two cultures and two generations, oftentimes who just fight so much, if we meet together and we just said, no, you have to do it our way because you need, you need to understand us. Or just, no, we, no, 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 you need to understand our way because you've just forgotten what's important. If we do that, it's not going to work. But if we will remember what is most important, the gospel, not our culture is what binds us together, but that Jesus took a people who were enslaved by their comfort zones, and by their generational selfishness. And then he redeemed us out of this enslavement, out of this smallness. And out of this brokenness, we would sit together under his redemptive work under the cross and be broken together and receive his grace together and then pass on the gospel together. In that, we can be made whole. Um, I'll share with you this story, and I know some of you have already heard this. Um, I, I know, I like talking about, uh, I think the place in our church where we are really, really starting to learn this the best is in our mission to the Paiute Native Americans um, in Bishop. So for those of you who are new to our church, for a number of years now, we've been going out to a Paiute Native American reservation near a, in a town in California called Bishop. Um, we've been going out there every year. And it's a strange and odd team that we send. The team ranges from ages like six, six through 60. <laughs> and some speak Korean and some speak English. Heck, some speak, I guess, Chinese and Spanish, okay? Um, and, they, and it ranges across the generation. When we go out to this reservation, there's a lot of brokenness. Um, they, the, there's, there's very few working marriages on this reservation. There's many people who are addicted to drugs and despair. And almost every year we go out there, 
we heard that recently somebody died. Sometimes it was a young person. Sometimes it was a middle-aged person. Sometimes they died of drug overdose. Sometimes they died in some other tragic way. And we went out there and first to share the gospel with them the best we can. And of course, we have compassion upon our Native American friends. And we proclaim the gospel and they, some of them believe and they become saved and we rejoice. Right? Well, let me tell you something that's happened there. Um, when we go out there, you know what we do? We actually do all the stuff that Deuteronomy 6 says. It says that we get up and then we, and then we do our devotions together. <laughs> and then we eat together. And then we laugh and talk and talk about the things that we're doing for the Lord together. And then we go out and serve together. And then at the end of the day, sometimes we come back. Sometimes it was hard. Sometimes it hurt. And then we debrief together and we share our wounds and, and our victories and then we pray for one another. We do, we actually do this we, when we get up and when we eat and when we're walking about our day, when we rise and when we, like, we actually do this together. And we're not trying to be, oh, the Koreans over here and this second generation Americans over here. We don't do any of that stuff. We're just what we called, and after about three years of doing this, we called this, we started, we had it, we put a name to this. We called it the Jesus-centered family. And those first few years, I used to wonder why the teenagers, while our, I mean, our youth kids love signing up for this mission trip, and they go every year. I used to wonder, why do they sign up for this thing, right? Um, it's, there's a lot of poverty over there. It's more than 100 degrees every day. Those first couple of years, they were sleeping on the ground, so it was uncomfortable, and they couldn't take showers. So why would kids sign up to go do this thing? And I used to wonder... Maybe they, it's in the middle of the summer and they got nothing better to do. <laughs> so I used to actually, I was so cynical. I was thinking like, well, maybe that's the case. But after two, three, four years, I realize when they go there, they're realizing they love being loved in Christ. They love living their life filled with purpose where everybody loves with a heart of worship. They love seeing this spirit where whether you're 60 years old or six years old, we put all the, the normal bickering aside and we pick each other up and we laugh and we cry and we see and taste the beautiful love of Jesus together. I think that's why they go. Because they love being part of the Jesus Center family. And you know what's happened? Those first few years, we'd see some Indians get saved, but you know, you know, we also saw, we saw our kids get saved. Those first few years, we would preach, I'd preach really hard to the Indian kids, and like two of them would get saved, and then four of our own kids get saved. See, if we do this, we will reach the next generation, and generation after that. And so, it is our deep prayer that the spirit of the Jesus Center family that we do in Bishop it will not only be over there, it would be right here in San Jose. And I hope that as, you're, as, you, as you join us, and as you walk with us, you find this compelling. And as we see the next generation and the next generation, from the heart, love Jesus, we would rejoice and give God all the glory. Let's pray. Your gospel is so beautiful and so powerful, Jesus. 
Father, thank you for calling us out of our enslavement, out of our own selfishness, out of the smallness of our own little cultural preferences, and being called into your family, into a heavenly culture where we redeem the things of Korean culture, we redeem the things of American culture. Yes, even we redeem the things of Native American Paiute culture. And while we serve you, while we obey you, you heal us. You take that which is lacking and you give us shalom. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We never deserve this. We normally tend to just seek after our own ways and we tend to just fight against other generations and we tend to go into our own selfish corners. But we thank you for having mercy on us, for forgiving us, for washing us with your blood and inviting us into this new kind of family. Bless our mission here, Lord, to our next generation. Today, I especially want to pray for all our youth teachers, all our children's ministry teachers. I pray for every member that they don't just think, oh, it's their job. No, it's all our jobs. It's all our missions. I pray for those who are 60 years old and 40 years old and 20 years old that we would all take on the mantle and that we want to become spiritual, not just fathers and mothers, but grandfathers and grandmothers. And I pray, Lord, that you would take this odd church and we wouldn't be so much an institution and a religion, but we would be your eternal family, filled with your wholeness and with your shalom. Give us this love for you with all our hearts, which would spill over into deep and genuine love for each other, would heal the rift across generations. And many, many in the next generation and the generation after that would be compelled to join this family and follow you, Jesus. We love you. We love you from our heart. We love you from our mind. We love you as we gather together. We worship you, not just even in this room, but when we gather together and when we wake up and when we rise, when we go to sleep and when we lie down, give us of your power, your presence. Fill us with your grace. Make us your family, the Jesus-centered family. We pray in your name.